we are going to get started here. Um, I am Morgan Smith. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. And I want to welcome you all here to this bright and early session um, today. And I really appreciate everyone um, getting up early on a Saturday morning to come hear us. Um, so this panel is called How to Turn Around a School. And I have um, a great uh, selection of panelists up here. Um, that I'm really excited to hear from. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. Oh, and I should say that um, we're going to be talking. We'll probably have a conversation up here for about 40, 45 minutes. And then at the end, I'd like to reserve as much time, 20, 20 to 15 minutes, for audience Q&As. So if something comes up, write it down, make a mental note, because um, I always that's actually my favorite part of the session. So. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to get started with, with intros here. Um, to my left, directly, is um, David Anthony. He is the CEO of Raise Your Hand Texas, which is an educational advocacy and research organization. Um, prior to joining Raise Your Hand Texas in 2011, he worked in, for 37 years in public education in Louisiana and Texas. Um, he most immediately before that, he served as the superintendent of Cypress Fair ISD, which is the third largest school district in Texas. He has served a total of 24 years as superintendent in five districts across Texas. Um, next, I have uh, Donna Bohorich, who is the chairwoman of the State Board of Education. Uh, she was first elected to the board representing the Houston area in 2012. Um, a former te telecommunications executive, she began, began her involvement in politics as district director and communications director for Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick back when he made his initial bid for state senate in 2006. Uh, Governor Abbott appointed her chairwoman of the state board in June. Um, then I have Steve Talent, who is the president of Texas A&M University in Kingsville. He became the 19th president of Texas A&M uh, Kingsville in 2008. Uh, previously, he served as Pro Euclid, Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Euclid? Eau Claire. Eau Claire. <laughs> um, he's a member of the Executive Committee for the Texas Council of Public University Presidents and Chancellors and a past chairman of the Lone Star Council of Presidents. And then uh, next up, I have uh, Dr. Paul Cruz, who is the superintendent of the Austin Independent School District. He has worked in education for 28 years and in, is in his 10th year with Austin ISD, where he previously served as chief schools officer. In that, in that role, he supervised four associate superintendents and more than 120 so campus principals for the district of 85,000 students. Uh, he also served as deputy commissioner for dropout prevention at the Texas Education Agency. Um, and then finally, I have uh, Juan Cabrera, who is the superintendent of the El Paso Independent School District. He was named superintendent of El Paso ISD in 2013. Um, a certified, he is a certified K-8 bilingual teacher who has worked as an inter international litigator and corporate executive with publicly traded technology firms. And he's also served as general counsel to more than 20 Texas school districts. Um, so to start out, I mean, whether you feel good or bad um, about the state of public schools overall in Texas, and I know just from the people I recognize sitting in the room that there's you know, a variety of, of opinions out there, um, but there are inevitably going to be individual campuses that struggle, um, especially in 
a public education system as large and, and, device, and diverse as the one in Texas. Um, today, up here, I'd really like to hone in on the living, breathing examples of, of what we know has worked to turn around failing schools in Texas, and then get to what policy changes can happen maybe at the state and local level um, to, to kind of remove some of the challenges or address some of the difficulties that school leaders are having in, um, in taking those things that work and implementing them um, at the campus level. Um, but I gave everyone kind of a hard question to start out with, um, and I just wanted to go down the line and just, I, I asked them to, as briefly as possible, if they could ma wave a magic wand and give school administrators at, at struggling schools in Texas the power to make just one change, uh, what would it be? Um, and we'll go ahead and um, start with Dr. Anthony here. Well, it's an awful question. Uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> Morgan's been doing this long enough to know that the issue is systemic and there is no silver bullet as far as turning around the school. But if I had a magic wand, I would say you'd have uh, the highest quality principal and high quality teachers in every classroom. That, that, that is essential. And that's why we've spent sufficient financial resources to make sure that we get uh, develop high quality principals. Then provide sufficient financial resources to provide programs that meet the needs of kids based on data, which would be similar to uh, uh, full day high quality pre-kindergarten, blended learning, taking kids where they are, moving where they need to be. And we can say that money is not the only answer, but when you're 49th in the state based on the Ed Week research of 2015 uh, quality counts report, 49th in the state, probably not doing what we should at this point in time, providing the resources, but especially uh, for those struggling schools to getting the high quality teachers and programs. And the last thing is free districts to innovate. And, and the legislature's done a good job with that in the last two sessions with the uh, Senate Bill 2 and with uh, House Bill 1842, as far as deregulating some of those uh, opportunities, giving uh, deregulation opportunities. So you've got to have people, resources, and freedom. All right, uh, Chairwoman. Um, <clears throat> I would say that um, committed school, uh, central office, and a school board trustees that are um, committed to the vision and uh, have a sense of urgency uh, around turning around schools. Uh, let me remind you that I'm the pr president of, of a university, so I'm coming from the other side, the supply side chain here in a way. We, we can talk about that later. This is my first experience working with, uh, at this depth with, with, uh, with a struggling uh, school district, and I'm going to answer it almost exactly like you did, but, but with one, one sentence. Well-paid, fully educated, certified instructors in every classroom in Texas. Okay, so very similar to what my colleagues have mentioned, um, I would just hone in again on the teachers and the quality of teachers, high quality teachers who create lessons that are engaging for students and relevant for students, um, while also with a high level of academic rigor. So I think it's a three-pronged approach, which we call in Austin ISD, uh, not our term, but from a professor, uh, and relevant really about the instructional core and high quality teachers, rigorous content, and relevant uh, curriculum for the students to make sure that students are engaged in that content. That's good. So I think that, um, you know, as, as David Anthony said, very, very tough question and something that I wrestle with daily, you know, on the backs of uh, trying to turn around a, a school district that was struggling. I think one of the first questions that I ask myself in trying to answer this question is, 
how do we define a school turnaround as being successful, especially in, in the K-12 sector? Because, you know, we, we've wrestled with STAR and accountability and, and, and what, and if that's the only measure. In the legislature, this session, I'm very excited about that. I think it bodes well for the future. You know, starting next school year, only 55% of your rating as a school comes from your STAR results. So that means that we're beginning to look at other measures, and I think that's going to be our challenge as educators, or what are those other measures, and what else do we do to say that school has been turned around, that school is successful. A lot of other great things need to happen, a safe, secure learning environment, making sure you've got adults all around a campus that care for kids, support kids, meet them where they are, and help them be successful. At the end of the day, we're, we're as it currently stands, we're rated on, on, on our star results, so obviously... If you had a magic wand, what I tell our, our, our principals all the time, we talk about a lot, you need to make magic happen in that classroom. And, and to me, that means you don't have a one-size-fits-all um, approach. It's a blended learning approach. It's a personalized learning approach. You take each child where they are. You get to know each child. Make sure you're socially, emotionally supporting them. And at the same time, you help them get better from where they started that year. And if everybody helps every kid get better through every school, every school year and every school year's critical, then I think we're, we will guaranteed be successful. But the magic question is how you define success in the future. Well, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit uh, throughout our discussion up here today. But um, I wanted to get into a little bit of um, what both uh, uh, Dr. Cruz and, um, and um, Dr. Talant, that you, that you guys have been doing in your work with uh, Premont ISD in the case of Dr. Talant and um, in, in Austin ISD with, with, with Dr. Cruz, because I think you're pursuing two, uh, two approaches that appear to have been um, a bit, uh, appear to be succeeding um, at, this, at this point in time uh, we have with Premont ISD and its partnership with Texas A&M, this kind of higher ed, uh, K through 12, uh, K through 12 approach, and then um, with Dr. Cruz in, in Austin ISD, you have the the community school model, which I'll let you kind of describe a little bit more. But um, Dr. Talent, do you want to just talk a little bit about um, that uh, focus on improving academics? Yeah, so uh, and I'll, I'll try to go quickly on this because we've done a lot, so I'll just <laughs> yeah. do it from the high level. In 2012, Premont Independent School District was in serious in trouble trouble. Six of their 10 buildings had been almost condemned. They did not have a science lab. They, owed, they were $10 million in debt. Uh, they were in deep, deep trouble. Uh, uh, they, the city, uh, uh, got together, started doing fundraise, fundraisers to get money. So they took the initiative. Because of what they did, I believe that Commissioner Williams thought they had a chance. Uh, he talked, Commissioner Williams talked to my boss, uh, Chancellor John Sharp, who asked me if, if we would be willing to, to work with them. They're 45 miles away. I don't think this has been ever done in the state of Texas. Um, I called in uh, my provost and my dean and the faculty of the college education. They were very leery about this. They were, they were afraid that it would, we, would, we would fail. But we all agreed that if we didn't do this, we shouldn't be in the business of what we did do. So we partnered with them. Over the last, now we've only been working with them for 29 months. Uh, but there's been some really good turnaround, but they have a long ways to go. Now, I can list all the activities, but very quickly, we, we, we concentrated on the learning environment. We, we concentrated on assessment. We, we concentrated on post-secondary education. And, we, uh, and, and, and the learning environment. 
we, the College of Education, as well as two of my vice presidents from Student Success and Student Access, have been working with them. Uh, and we work with everybody. We worked with parents. We worked with school board. We did uh, the year-long training for school board members. We worked with teachers in Abbott. We worked with uh, uh, all the students. And we worked with families. So we've done probably, I, I could count them up, 100 different activities in working with them. It's been uh, extraordinarily um, labor-intensive. We helped them write a grant and they, from, from TA, and they received a $1.9 million grant, where now they're recruiting uh, teachers to come in. So it's been a, a great partnership, and I'll talk about that later. It's collaborative. It's a partnership. And the thing that is the best about it is nobody the commissioner nor my chancellor told us what we had to do. They gave us complete independence and freedom to partner and work together to help solve those problems pertinent to that school district. And I hope that answers the question a little. Yeah, and I just had a quick follow-up because there's so many of, of the responses to, to the initial question about um, what would be changed had to do with um, having quality yeah, the, in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about how you've addressed kind of that prong of the issue? Yeah, the, the, the uh, um, you know, we, all, we, higher education, we always point fingers at you saying, you know, we need better teachers, but we're providing you the teachers. And it's, <laughs> it's cyclical, okay? You know, on a supply side here, you know, you're supplying our students, but we're supplying your teachers, and we work together on this. Uh, we worked... Uh, uh, working with the instruction there, working with, with the faculty there, AVID, which is a program that everybody up here knows about, intense AVID training. Again, we worked in getting money to go out and help them hire new faculty, and there's been tremendous turnover, which we'll talk about. A lot of faculty left. They didn't want to be held accountable, and I mean, it's that simple, and they bring in new faculty. The thing that I, that's important for me, and I'm very selfish about this, is making us a better college of education. I have students in that classroom, and I have faculty in that classroom now, and I have administrators going there who've been teaching a lot of theory for a long time, but they're seeing the real problems <clears throat> that in the real lives that they're dealing with every day in a small South Texas school district, and it's only enhancing what's taking place in my classroom now. So, so it's not just that we're helping them, they're helping us and we're growing stronger and we're learning from them. And, and so in turn, hopefully, we'll be producing better teachers to send the Premont. That's great. Um, Dr. Cruz, you, in your case, you weren't dealing with a, uh, an entire district that was struggling, you were dealing with um, two campuses, uh, Reagan High School and Webb Middle School, um, which were both facing closure, near closure in 2007. Um, and you, and Austin ISD kind of adopted this approach known as the community school model that, that seems to focus on a lot of the factors outside of the classroom that can affect students' uh, ability to learn and student achievement. Can you tell us a little bit about um, why that was the approach that Austin ISD took and, and, and how, it's, how it's fared so far? Okay, um, certainly. So one of the, I guess, one of the key elements, in addition to what I talked about previously, the instructional core, it is about autonomy. And it is about empowering those individuals directly in those campuses to serve kids in, the be in a better way. So in Austin ISD, it is, there's two schools that we're talking about here, but the whole context of Austin, it is 130 schools, it's 84,000 students, uh, over 12,000 employees, and so that's just sort of the, the scope of the district. 
But nonetheless, we had two schools about to be closed by the state um, because of uh, lack of performance over time. And um, student enrollment at Webb Middle School was about 500 or less. Uh, enrollment at Reagan High School was a little under 800 students. So obviously we had um, a lot of space in the building, but kid, obviously there's got to be different places. And, and parents were choosing those options. When we looked at it, obviously there's got to be a strong academic component to it. So we'd never move away from the instructional core. But what I do think community schools, what it first tries to bring is develop a culture, a culture of excellence and collaboration. One thing that I love about Austin, love a lot of things about Austin, but one thing that I love about, about Austin is people really want to step up to the plate. They want to help and support our schools and our students and our families. They really do. But that has to be collaborated, sort of has to be organized so that everybody doesn't come at the principal at one time. And you know, it is 130 sites. So there's support to be given across our district, not just two schools out of the 130. So it, it really is about studying what are the non-school factors that are impacting student performance. So when students aren't coming to school for attendance, it could be various reasons. When students are dropping out of school, which is what was happening at these two schools, they're dropping out, not coming. And it wasn't necessarily because, um, you know, while I taught language arts and it's important to write a persuasive composition, that really wasn't why. There were other non-school factors, whether situations with the home, with uh, employment with the family, with understanding healthcare, uh, understanding how to access the system that uh, is understandable for families. I mean, all these other issues were there. So what, in Austin, we organize all the support systems uh, in place that are here to help support kids. And when I see Suki Steinhauser in communities and schools, that's an exceptional one. So here's specifically focused on improving academics, but it's really looking at um, groups of students coming together to sort of work through some issues and sort of guide students along the way. And also around case management, when you have students that are dealing with situations that are beyond what a teacher can do in a classroom. Community schools, that's just one example of one effort coming together to organize supports for that student and for that family. And I think that's really the essence of community schools. It really is trying to get an entire community to help support students in learning. So where we were back then at Webb and at Reagan, talked to you about enrollment, they're about to be closed. Webb Middle School has met, uh, has met uh, state performance standards every single year. They met five of six academic distinction designations. Their enrollment is a little under, it's about 750 students right now. The students can transfer out, but they don't. They actually stay there uh, because of the system that and the culture that's been created there. Reagan High School was, uh, we turned actually, that went into a, an early college high school, which is that a student who is enrolled in the school can actually earn up to 60 college credits. And this past year, we had our very first graduating class of it's been high school students. And they don't, you know, students can earn 60 to, you know, nine credits. But nonetheless, we had our very first graduating class of early college high school. Students graduated with uh, college credits. That school has made, met state performance standards every single year. And enrollment this year is over 1,300 students. The students can transfer, but they don't because now there's a culture of excellence. There are some supports that are necessary for uh, students and for families, and uh, consequently, as a result of that, we've actually bringing in community schools, working with our teacher union, our teacher organization, and working with uh, Austin uh, or uh, AV, which is uh, Voices for uh, for Education and our, with our youth, um, collaborating with them to then create additional community schools across the Runberg area, which is one of the higher poverty areas in our entire city. So we're really extending that and working in different areas. I'm a fan. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Cabrera, um, I mean, when you 
came to lead uh, El Paso ISD, it was, uh, I mean, a district that was really in crisis. You had um, a cheating scandal. Um, you had TEA kind of breathing down your necks, threatening to take over. Um, how is coming into a situation like that? How do you approach it, and and what it, what can what can school leaders around the state kind of take away from what you've accomplished there since then? Yeah, I think that's a pretty unique situation. Hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, not too many others have to go through it. It was, it was pretty dire. Your, your predecessor is in federal prison, and uh, the entire school board's removed by the state. I think we're the largest district to ever have that happen. So I think one of the biggest lessons for me, because I think of this all the time, um, is that at the end of the day, the only reason we exist as, as a superintendent is to try to, you know, in our case, we have, you know, 4,000, 4, 5,000 classrooms. I want to make sure that in every one of those classrooms, something magical is happening every day to improve the lives of children. But there's so many um, levels of the bureaucracy that get in the way to actually making that happen. So for me, unfortunately, I can tell you that I'm very excited about the future. I've, I've just started my third year. But I spent most of the first two years trying to put the right people in place at central office and in other positions at the principal support level to make sure that they're the kind of people that I, that I believe cared about kids and cared about schools and that I believe their sole focus was to support schools. So at the end of the day, <clears throat> what I've learned about this process is the, the average for school districts in Texas and probably the same around the country, we spend between 80 and 85% of all of our money um, on people. And, and, you know, being a business guy and somebody that wants to try to find an answer for everything in, in terms of a strategy or a process or, or a program, I thought, well, why do we spend so much of our time focusing on this 15% that we spend programmatically, software, programs, and this, that? I said, we need to spend at least half our time or more on getting great people in each of the buildings in its central office. So, and I know, unfortunately, this is not a, a, a nice black and white answer, but what we're really focused on, what we have been focused on and we're focused on the future, is creating great working conditions for our staff, supporting people that take care of kids. If I don't think you care for kids or take care of kids, I've got no problem getting you out of the building or getting you out of the district. And I make it very clear to everybody that this is not a job. If you want a job, go work at a bank or a post office. This is a service business. We care about kids, we care about people. We gotta take care of the big people and the little people. I, I say that all the time. And it really is about that in education. I think sometimes you get caught up in accountability and all these other things and, and you forget that you're there to serve and support. So for, for me, uh, from the beginning and going forward, it's really been about trying to find the most intelligent, caring people I can in every part of the district and making sure they lead our schools. We replaced. Out of 92 schools, I think I've replaced 60 principals already because it just, I didn't feel like I had the right people. And um, the story hasn't been written for EPISC and the turnaround, but I'm gonna bank on, um, I believe in people, I believe in, in, in the goodness of people, and, and I think we're gonna write a great story when it's all said and done, but it's gonna be through supporting, growing, and identifying uh, just, just top-notch folks. And when you, when you talk about some of the, the bureaucratic uh, obstacles that you had to had to deal with is could you give a few examples are you referring to um, just hiring and firing process um, what exactly were you up against 
Ours is unique. I mean, my, my, I mean I, I'm probably the only, I say I'm the only superintendent that visited with the FBI six times in his first <laughs> six months. I mean, that, that's just not, that's not normal. Uh, I met with the district attorney. I met with the county attorney. I met with all the local investigative agencies. We still, unfortunately, uh, not good for EPIC, but we, my last meeting with the feds, I still meet with the feds about once a quarter, is going to, there will be some more indictments dropped of, um, of ex-employees at EPISD. Obviously, when we have an oversight by a board of managers, um, that means that I was on a regular basis talking to Commissioner Williams and folks at TEA. So my level of bureaucracy wasn't your typical, you know, taking over a school district. Uh, but then after that, you know, you get in there and you get into a school district, and I think Austin's the same way. I, I, I worked in Austin ISD. In fact, I worked at Webb Middle School my last year teaching, so I know that school very well. And, uh, and I'm, 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 that, that is something that I'm so proud of, the turnaround they've done there. But the bureaucracies exist. Sometimes you get some folks that are just entrenched into a school system, especially when you're like in Austin or in El Paso and you're the big one in town and people want to stay. And, and they just don't want you to move their cheese. It doesn't really matter what you're bringing and how much you care. One of the hardest things about a school system is you've got people entrenched in their jobs and you know, we talk about blended learning and all the important things and all the innovation we can take advantage of to better serve kids, but my biggest challenge is change management in the school system. People just don't want to change. I think we've gotten there now over time. You know, in the corporate world, I'm just used to anytime we bring change, people want to keep their jobs, so we change and we go and we don't stop, we don't slow down. And in the school system, it, it's not that easy. So I think David Anthony would agree at the superintendent level, learning how to manage change and building coalitions and building support for initiatives is probably the biggest challenge we face from the leadership side. Well, um, and I kind of want to shift maybe to this, the statewide perspective now. Um, you know, Chairwoman, in your, in your role at the State Board of Education, um, you not only you know, meet with uh, school leaders in your in your district in Houston, but also now you know all around the state. And then you also work very closely with the Texas Education Agency and its staff. Um, can you kind of give a, some perspective on um, you know what some of the issues that you know school leaders are coming to you with what you're hearing from the Texas education agency when it when it comes to school turnarounds um, I think what's important is I want to give you guys some statistics about um, the work that is being done the last four years uh, the agency has really concentrated on uh, school support for this, these kinds of situations where you've got uh, difficult uh, schools that uh, need to be turned around Right now, we have 248 districts in Texas that have uh, what's known as a uh, district coordinator of school improvement. And those are required when you have at least one school in a district um, that is improvement required. And uh, altogether, because some of these districts are very large, there are 347 of these coordinators um, that are trained by the agency and um, uh, have required training, and then they work uh, very closely uh, in their districts with the district staff as well as the Education Service Centers uh, and TEA uh, on measures and uh, what, what they're going to do to move forward for these schools. Um, there are 609 schools, uh, 609 campuses in the, in the state that have improvement required. 
So that gives a setting for the amount of schools that we're talking about, the need that's out there. Some of the things that, in addition, that the, the agency provides is, um, in addition to the training for the coordinators and working with the coordinators, they have a, a new program that they're doing, which is a uh, turnaround educator pipeline initiative. And they're working right now with Region 20 Education Service Center. And um, they're, they have uh, they put out a, a bid and are working with the opportunity culture model uh, in some of those schools that offer different opportunities for teachers so that if you have effective teachers, you want to increase their effectiveness in whatever way they're effective. So um, if it's to teach more students, um, because they're particularly effective with students, you want to help them be effective teaching other teachers uh, so that you can spread that effectiveness around. So this opportunity culture model creates different opportunities for teachers to get higher pay and to move into different um, options for them that will take most advantage of their professionalism and what they can really offer and with the end result of increasing effectiveness to students. Um, I think this is a pretty exciting initiative, and the most popular model right now is the master classroom um, leader model, which is that teacher who is very effective at helping other teachers, coaching other te teachers very intentionally, has three or four teachers, and then actually is uh, held responsible also for the work that those teachers, they're teaching um, the effectiveness of those uh, instructors. And so it becomes a very incentivizing model, uh, and you also get higher pay with that. So kind of creating different levels of opportunity. That's the one that's been most popular. Another um, initiative that's, that they're working on is the uh, District Turnaround Leadership Initiative. And uh, they're working with UVA. UVA, uh, University of Virginia, has the only turnaround model uh, that I know of uh, that works specifically on uh, teaching districts uh, and leadership how to uh, implement and what really works with turnarounds. And so they're doing a lot of work with that right now, and specifically working with San Antonio ISD and Uvalde um, as well. And what I'm really excited about that they've come up with um, that I think is very good is they've done a reward school case study. Um, and when they put out the results of this, they picked the 11 um, uh, reward schools, and these schools, um, they wanted a diverse sample of schools, small and large, uh, urban and rural, uh, charter and publics across a, a geographic, different geographic regions in the state, and um, these schools had to meet, uh, meet high standards on achievement and also high growth models. And they published that case, and when they put out what they came up with as critical success factors for these schools that are high-achieving schools. Um, these were the critical success factors. Academic performance, which we've discussed very well. Uh, use of quality data to drive instruction. Leadership effectiveness. Increase of learning time before and after school uh, and in uh, other ways. Family and community engagement, which also has been discussed. School climate. And we've all talked about uh, teacher quality. All of the things that you've been hearing are the, the same kinds of things that were uh, 
discussed in this reward school study. The interesting thing is, usually when they put out studies from the agency, they don't get that much interest. The accountability stuff does. Everybody goes and hits on that, downloads this. This case study is competed with the accountability ratings in the number of downloads and people going to access this information. So I would highly recommend that you look into the summary of the rewards school case study project. Um, and again, where I'm just, I'm kind of, I actually wasn't really sure if I was going to get a lot of similar answers up here, um, but it, it really does seem to come up very frequently, um, teacher quality, having quality leadership in the schools, and I know that that's something that Raise Your Hand Texas has focused on um, a lot, um, kind of in it's the professional development side of things. Uh, Dr. Anthony, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think Donna was cheating off my notes. <laughs> uh, she pretty much had what I had. We, we have a, a, a document, a white paper that we had commissioned that was done by American Institutes for Research, and I brought some copies of it if any of you wanted. But it, it's basically, it's looked across what nation to see what turnaround uh, programs really, what they include. And, uh, and, and what she's mentioned is almost the same thing as TEA came up with, leadership, staff quality, Professional development, targeted professional development that is based on uh, data, use of data for instructional design, culture, creating a, a culture of collaboration and trust on a campus, mm -hmm. and then program coherence. Uh, the last two I want to address because when you when you talk about these turnaround schools, and you say we we'll give the we fire and hire and fire the principal, that may be necessary, but there's no research that supports the fact that a new principal does a better job than the old principal. Uh, you may, it may do better, or he may, or she may. But there's no research that supports that. But even if it happens, who determines what campus, what staff members are there? You want the best teachers there, and what I was going to say, other magic wand is, everybody is a high-quality educator on the campus because they want to be there, not because they're assigned there. And when you have a culture of collaboration and trust, make sure, and your uh, turnaround program, make sure that you're not turning around a campus because it's mandated, because it's compliance driven. It's because you really believe that every child in the state of Texas deserves a high quality education and you're going to fix the school. If not, kill the school, get rid of it, do away with it. If the school doesn't exist to be a school, the school only exists to serve the needs of all the students that are in that neighborhood or who choose to attend there. So it, it, it's, it's a philosophy uh, that you have to have at the board level, it was mentioned, by Chairman Bohort, you got it. You have to have the board and administ central administration that are committing to a a culture where you support the need for change when it occurs. Now there are only about 150 campuses in the state that are in the second year of improvement required, and we are very familiar with UVA. Uh, uh, Dr. Andre Morgan out there in the audience, it, he he works with me, and and we're working with UVA, and we're working with TEA, and we want to provide this training for board member central office and principals on what it takes to turn around a school. It's not just on that principal stick them him or her out there and say turn it around. We'll see you when you get it done, whatever get it done looks like. So the other thing is program coherence. You get NCLB involved, you get the federal government involved, you get TEA involved, and you get a low-performing school after two or three years, and you are mandated all these days off campus, all the days of training, having to monitor, having compliance to all these multiple interventions. And essentially, even the greatest teachers in the world can't keep up with learning all the interventions they have to implement at one time. And it's like 
overkill. I mean, you're taking all the drugs at one time trying to cure a symptom rather than the true disease. And the true disease is determined by what do, what do the data really show? There are a lot of intervention community about the students there and about what their needs truly are. So there are a lot of interventions out there, but if you try to implement every one of them, you will not do justice to the school. So we need program coherence. We need a collaborative environment between the teachers. Three things that haven't been mentioned are you need teacher leaders. It's not just the principal and just the teachers being told what to do. Teacher leaders, it needs to be top down and bottom up as far as meeting the needs of kids. High quality teacher in front of a classroom every day is the most important factor in a child's education. The most important factor. We spend too much time worrying about trying to do how do we fire and hire teachers. How do we develop them once we get them? No, they're not all perfect child centers. But you know what? Some are really good. And it's our job to have that ongoing professional development, mentorship, training, support once we get them in place rather than throw them in there and say, take care of all these ninth graders who are 20 years old. You don't do that to teachers. And so when we look at what we need, we need to, to determine, one, is this compliance? Or is it because we believe every kid needs a high-quality campus? Then we need to get the high-quality administrator, high-quality teacher. But the other thing, we need career counselors for kids and LPC counselors. A lot of these kids come in with baggage. I mean, they have a lot of stuff. They deal with more stuff before breakfast than most of us dealt with in our in, in years when we were growing up. I'm going to interrupt just what do, what do you mean by LPC counselors? Licensed professional counselors. Okay. These, those are the ones who deal with the, the social and emotional needs as well. They're, they're charged with other responsibilities as well. But separate the two and, and have these career uh, counselors that help these kids figure out what careers are out there through Texas Workforce Commission, what degrees they need, and then make sure that we're meeting all the needs of the, of the kids through the appropriate funding of these programs. Uh, but Find them where they are and move them where they need to be. Don't always push them back to the lowest level. Every kid doesn't need to start over if they fell ninth grade. Start where they were and move forward. So I think the chairwoman and, and Dr. Anthony both did a really good job of, of kind of illustrating what the ideal is and what where we need to be and what um, you know what some of the solutions are. But um, just briefly before I open it up to questions, I'd love to just hear the two superintendents um, say. You know, what are just if you could just name like your top two challenges um, in kind of getting to that point where you're in a position to be able to make the changes to if you see what, okay, this is the solution to the problem, uh, what are some of the obstacles in your way and, and kind of the challenges that you face getting there? Um, <clears> if you kind of take the summary of all this, at the end of the day, what we're saying is that you need great teaching in every classroom. So, you know, how do you do it at, at our level? How do, you, how do you know that you've got the people in place that are assuring that's happening? We can sit around in, in leadership meetings at central office and talk about that, and we all nod our heads and we understand that, and the things that folks are saying here, it all makes sense. My biggest challenge is, so, and again, you know, being a lawyer and working in business, I want to make it into a numbers thing or somewhere where I can, but it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. Great teaching uh, can be different in different schools and different communities and also depend again where the kids are at. So um, I guess that's my biggest challenge, something that, that, I'll, that I'll, we'll never get it right, but what I'm gonna you know, struggle with and, and continue to, to, to work with is, is how do we make sure have great teachers in every classroom? And once that's happening, um, I think that's easier to fix it, but it's 
do you really know what's happening? We can't wait for the star exam at, at the end of, you know, it's a post-mortem in May. So right now, every day, I'm talking to our educators and our principals. How do we know it's happening? I want to know right now if it's happening because it's too late. That school year is gone for that kid. And we know statistically, if a child has two or three bad teachers, they may never recover. One, one bad teacher, two bad teachers, it might take them three years of good teaching to get back on track. So we, our job as educational leaders is to do whatever we can. And, and I, I do think it's, you know, Dr. Anthony just hit it on the head. It's, 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 it's coaching people, supporting people. You've got the people you've got. You know, we talk about being able to hire and fire teachers. That's not necessarily, when, you, when you're down to having to, to terminate a teacher, it's gotten really bad. What about all those teachers in the middle that yeah. are kind of average? Those are the ones that, that, that can also cause us harm if we're not supporting. So we've got to work to help them get better, to give them the tools to support the kids. And um, I, guess, I guess I forgot your question now, but I guess that's my answer. No, I, that's think, my I answer. think you answered it. Um, <laughs> I, I'll bet you were a great lawyer. I remember, <laughs> I remember the question, though. <laughs> I do, because uh, Trustee Cowan is here with us, and she understands us and, and knows as well. She's one of our board members in Austin ISD. And we have to ask permission so many times. I talked about those two schools. It took us uh, two years to actually even launch it because we had to first get you know, permission from you know, TEA, and then there was permission from the federal government, and then the representatives who were there, they had to approve it. But then with our partnership with the community college, they had to approve that. And then when we began to implement, they had to approve the teachers, they had to approve their curriculum. It's like the only one who doesn't have autonomy is a teacher and a principal. Yet our theory of action is if they had complete autonomy, we could actually make sure kids learn in Excel. But there are so many permissions, and it really is, because you just can't launch it. You, you just can't you know, do it. It takes two years, and meanwhile, you have, um, you got, well, in our situation, that's 84,000 students coming through, walking through our classroom doors every single day. How long do we wait? And then why do we have to wait? If that community, we know what excellence looks like, we need some autonomy to, autonomy to implement, to go forth. Our local board with our trustees, they have oversight of the resources, the funding, the, the mechanisms that we have in place. Let it be then at the local, you know, complete autonomy at the local level so that we can implement. It is complex, and one size does not fit all, certainly not in Austin ISD. What works at one school and one community is not going to work across the board. We can't just take a set of teachers, put them in another set of schools, and say, it's just going to happen. It's not, and, and Dr. Anthony alluded to that. It doesn't work like that. But then while the policy implication is always about, well, who has authority to actually say yes? Is it the local board with the local trustees? And the answer sometimes, well, yes, they do, but they're the first level of approval. But then after that, there's a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And then meanwhile, people ask, so are we implementing yet? And it's, well, not yet. Give us another year because it still takes time to actually sort of rev up and so forth. And so I think those are for the policy implications that when it talks about local autonomy at the local level, how essential that I think that truly is, it's necessary. Um, and then I think uh, chair, the chairwoman and Dr. Talant wanted to kind of respond and then we will open it up for questions as promised. The only comment I'd just like to make is uh, nationally, superintendents, uh, the turnover rate is 3.2 years. So when you're t hearing uh, the discussion about how long it takes to get these things going and get that momentum started, you know, when you have that as the average national turnaround, 3.2 years, you can see how difficult this process truly is. This is not 
as Dr. Anthony started off, this is not, you know, just wave the magic wand and snap the fingers and here, here we go, send in the Superman team and go. It's much more complex than that. And uh, I appreciate uh, my colleagues up here talking about how uh, all of the challenges and the length of time that has to be set in motion. I just want to say that because of the dire situation at Premont, I believe that we, we Premont ISD and, and Texas A&M Kingsville, were able to cut through a lot of that. And for whatever reason, they let us. Now, we had to, you know, we, we had to present a plan and we had to get approval, but it was expedited and it worked, okay? So my takeaway from that is, but it should never have gotten to that situation. But because it got to that situation, I think we were given autonomy and independence to do some things that had not been done before. And, and I agree with you, it, it worked, but worked for that location in that situation. And, and I think we have to be real careful. And Members of the audience, uh, please feel free to go to um, either of these two microphones to ask your question. Yes, yes, sir. Two prong question for Dr. Cruz and uh, Dr. Cabrera, and that is Eastside Memorial High School emerged from uh, being an unacceptable campus recently. Would you be willing? to somehow put together a white paper on that or work with trustees around the state to kind of help them understand how that came about. I think one of your trustees, Dr. Jamie Mathias, was instrumental in writing the RFP for that because now, if, if my memory serves me correctly, if we have a campus that goes three years of being unacceptable, the commissioner can replace the entire school board with the board of managers. So it would be really helpful to know how, how you managed to improve Eastside after, I think, almost a dozen years. And in my follow-up question, uh, kind of uh, pointing to something the chairwoman said, to keep the trustees involved in student achievement for you, Dr. Cabrera, is I think your new board just took office in May. Yes. And you, you have seven trustees? Yes. So I would be interested in knowing how you are working with a brand new board of trustees to get them up to speed and really working as a team of eight in a very short period of time to keep El Paso ISD uh, focused on the, on the right thing. So those are two kind of questions, if you would be willing to do that, Dr. Cruz, and then follow up by Dr. Cabrera. Absolutely. And so, yes, absolutely. The answer to the question is yes, to write a concept paper and talk about what happened at Eastside Memorial over time, which is a chronically underperforming school for many, many years. And um, one of the things that we did get with our commissioner was more time. But we have had, just a couple of weeks ago, representatives from um, the lieutenant governor's office, from uh, our senator's office, representatives come and visit and see what's going on here at Eastside Memorial. I will say it was, it's a very... Um, it's a very methodical, very coherent process along the way to implement when you have a situation, I'd say Eastside maybe is not as a, it's not, it's a school, not a district. It does take a lot more time, um, but uh, it's a little bit more complex. And in these situations, it was an exception. 
that we're given more time and had an agreement with the commissioner and the Texas Education Agency to implement some of the work with Johns Hopkins, to look at some of the work around career pathways, look at how we're gonna sort of make things happen here at the local level. But certainly to the question, absolutely we can write a white paper and then also uh, we've had several folks come in and visit, I just mentioned from the uh, legislative level, come in and visit and see what that really, what it really takes. And you know, how to work with different community partners, that's cool as well. Uh, did take a community schools approach as part of their turnaround because that was pretty significant when you're dealing with very high poverty, a lot of mobility, a, a lot of mobility. Kids who are there on day one, they're, they're not going to be there at mid-year and at the end of the year. So you have to sort of, that has to be part of the equation. And it's not, you start, you leave, you come back. It's a new set of groups. You have a, a teacher who moves and sort of all that sort of life happens uh, in these very, some of our schools are very, very complex and the dynamics are very different. Um, and so that's just something a little bit more context to the situation there at, at Eastside. And that's House Bill 1842 that, that, that was, is going to change that. So it's very important. I think two years will pass pretty quick. So we've got to get a white paper out there. We've got to support all the schools with all the IR schools. We've got two years will come before you know it. And you know, one of my challenges on that, just to follow up on that question, is you know, to get it out of IR, then it, it's about stars. So then what we don't want to do is take these schools and turn them into test prep factories so that we get past STAR, but we don't really have a holistic education and an appropriate education for kids to help them develop, you know, not just do well on the STAR test. So that's gonna be our challenge with that, with that shorter timeline that we're gonna to have to look at. And to your question on the trustees, you know, I, I think that, uh, first of all, I, I will, and, and I think this is gonna be part of the, the, the new legislation where they let the manager stay four years. I think it was a big mistake. So five people hired me they were my bosses for two years, and they all left. And from one day to the next, I had seven new bosses, none of which hired me. So I will say that the last five months have probably been the most challenging of my, of my first 24 months, and, and probably the, some of the ones that I enjoyed the least. Let's just say that. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, I got, so you work for two years to build relationships with five folks, and then all of a sudden, they're all gone. And, and I, one, one of the, hopefully, we don't have to have board of managers too often, but I think I think I will visit with the new commissioner to make sure that we stagger when managers are, are pulled off of a board. So at least you have a little bit of continuity on the transition. But I'm really blessed. I, I also have the opportunity. I worked with, with hundreds of trustees across the state for a number of years. And, and to answer your question about how we're building cohesiveness, really for a superintendent, and, and these folks can tell you, it really comes down to the agenda that the trustee comes to you with. If you're blessed to have trustees that truly care about kids and improving the community and don't have another ulterior motive like their own, their own interest, it's really easy to work with people because we can quickly find common ground. And I am lucky. I've got seven people that, that truly don't care about being with vendors, don't care about you know, this or that. Or, and it doesn't seem like I have anybody that wants to run for, for their next political career. And I think for that, it's really made it easy. But honestly, from a superintendent's perspective, if you've got six or seven people or four or five people that don't really care about schools and kids, but they're there for other reasons, it's, it's really, really difficult to make it work. I mean, we have to make sure that, that in the process, in your communities, the people that you vote into, trust, into offices as trustees, you got to make sure you, you quiz them and make sure that they're in it for the right reasons and then hold them accountable when they're in their chairs because it's hell to be a superintendent with a trustee that doesn't really care about kids in schools. It really, really is hard. Next question. Mr. Cabrera, my question's for you. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Seth Krasny. I'm a freshman student here at UT Austin, and I graduated from your district back in June. 
Um, now more than ever, I'm concerned with the lack of opportunity being uh, displayed in EPISD as I'm talking to my peers from all across the state and the nation. Um, you came to EPISD a little over two years ago without having any superintendent's background and were given a two-year extension uh, to the beginning of September in order to get your superintendent certification. Um, why do you believe that since you still don't have that uh, certification and today you're operating a little bit contrary to what Texas law states, um, you should still be superintendent of EPISD? Well, it's important to get your facts right. I appreciate your answer. I'm proud that you're an EPISD grad. When I saw my contract, I was given a three-year time period to get the certification. So the three years is up in September of 2016, because I started September of 2013. I had to get a principal certificate and a superintendent certificate. So I did that. Had to also take a number of college hours in the education area to be able to take my super certificate. So I've done that. And now I'm just getting ready to take the soups test. Um, you know. At the end of the day, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do and I'm proud of the work that I've done. And uh, the reality is that nobody wanted that job. As much <laughs> as people want to think that they did, now they want it because we've changed it. Nobody wanted that job. And the reason that I gave up a legal career and a very successful life here in Austin, Texas, is because I told my wife, I said, you know, what they need there is somebody that's not scared to swing for the fences, somebody that's gonna take a risk for kids and families, and uh, somebody doesn't care if they're never a superintendent again. And I didn't think no. anybody else that I knew was interviewing had that kind of courage, so I did it because of that. And if I don't end up being a superintendent again or don't pass my certificate, I really don't care. So I did what I did for those reasons, and I'm happy, and I think I'm very qualified for the job. but live in Austin now. Next question. And I'm a graduate from Islet Independent School District. My mom is a former high school principal and I'm a former AISD employee, proud to be here. I find myself working in advertising now, even though I began my career in education in the classroom teaching middle school English. And I wanna know, um, since I'm now finding myself in the business community with a public servant heart, how do we engage business? And what role does business have to play in school turnaround, in community schools, in these partnerships? We know, obviously, that throwing dollars at the problem is not necessarily the answer. However, dollars help. So how can we find that sweet spot? What have you all found? I, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You did so, so well on that last one. I'm like, <laughs> you've earned the right. I, I just want to say for us, we're, we're geographically isolated in El Paso, as you know. So for us, probably as much as any other school district, it's really critical. Economic development, we see ourselves as part of the economic development engine. I talk to business leaders all the time, not just about helping us financially, about what kind of, what kind of uh, graduate would you like? What kind of graduate do you need? What do we need to be part of the economic development in El Paso? So for me, and I guess it's also easier since I, I worked in business, you know, both getting their input around the kinds of classes and dual credit and internships and whatnot we're doing for our kids to help them be successful and stay in El Paso, and also uh, their financial support with innovative program on the fringes, like anything we're doing with blended learning or new tech schools, project-based learning. We're doing a big in in investment in dual language programs. Some of these are outside of the norm and we don't have the money to pay for the classes, the, the, the innovation on the fringes. 
and I'm leaning really heavily on philanthropy and business folks. So if you want us to innovate, help us pay just for that on the fringes, and, and we couldn't do it without business leaders. I think we have time for one more question. Hi, my name is Anna Myers, and I'm a teacher at Yes Prep Public Schools in Houston. And um, my question is specifically to the chairwoman and Mr. Anthony, because you spoke a lot to teacher development and teacher training. And I really appreciate that, because that's been one of the main things that has caused me to feel satisfied at my school, and like it's a place where I want to actually build a career, which is kind of rare right now in the charter world. Um, and so I have a two-part question. One, I'm just curious if you have seen any um, specific programs that you think would work on a statewide level um, and that you'd like to see implemented um, in terms of like teacher training and development. And then second question is just related to teacher burnout because I think that that's one of the biggest things that we see in tough environments to teach in, specifically failing schools. And if you have any ideas around how to retain teachers longer. Well, uh, yeah, you want that? No, you do. <laughs> things, there, there was a program and it, it's still on the books in Texas called TexBest, big T, little X, B-E-S-S. And it was a, a paid mentorship program for new teachers. Uh, what we should be doing for every new teacher, uh, regardless of where they teach, public education, uh, where they come from, is at least two years being mentored by a master teacher. And there, were, uh, there was a definition for master teacher. And so it provides them, you know, some new teachers may know if they teach Algebra one, they may know everything about Algebra one, but they're not sure when they can go to the restroom and where the, all the supplies are and, and when, what they do for breaks and what access to support they have. And so you need that mentorship program for at least two years to help teachers work through the logistics of being an effective teacher. Uh, in addition, you can, we have had opportunities for specific professional development for these teachers. Uh, many times um, uh, the, the new teachers are thrown into the, some of the worst classes, most difficult classes, because more experienced teachers think, and incorrectly, but even principals think they've earned the right to move up to teach uh, uh, the easier to teach kids. And so they don't, they may have those classes that are difficult, but they don't always have the support to, to address those needs. Scheduling teachers uh, more appropriately is, would be very important, putting them in easier to teach and harder to teach classroom, not all in one, especially brand new teachers, following them in support. But it, there's a lot of time that has to be spent with brand new teachers. They don't come ready to teach. I don't care what the good, uh, what the educator uh, preparation program is. There's not a master teacher year one. It, it does not occur. Uh, it's like unicorns. And so after, <laughs> after you know, we all know about them, but we've never seen them. And, and so uh, what, what we need to do is to have that two to three year of development period and then support and have them in small groups. But we need to really focus on preventing burnout by making them better prepared. Every teacher that starts wants to do a great job. There are very few teachers who say, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to disrupt everything and I'm going to hurt these kids. That doesn't happen. But we don't prepare them, we don't support them. And so your point is, there are some programs that's going to take a little money. I think you're going to see some legislative opportunities in this coming session to, to deal with not teacher evaluation and teacher termination, but teacher uh, preparation, certification, and support, which are critical, is going to be critical to our, uh, our students in the future. I really think that we've just got to, and I referred to it earlier, create a different career pathway for teachers um, that incentivizes them because they can get different kinds of responsibility and really specialize in what they're really good at. 
um, and, and the district also ends up taking advantage and, uh, of that talent and putting it strategically, and then they earn more opportunity. And because and, often what happens is that your best teachers end up getting more work, and that's all we do for them. Um, but it can't be. I, I think it's a poor system when. Uh, the only way to, to get ahead as a teacher is to be an administrator. Yeah. And no offense to the administrator. <laughs> no, it's right. That's right. You need but to create a, a, offensive, but true. <laughs> yeah. right. I just think that's the wrong way for our teachers. We have to be much more creative and much more thoughtful and much more um, intentional about creating those career pathways for teachers, if you will. Yeah, I, I want to add that, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, what we should have is a teacher leader certification or endorsement that pays the same as any assistant principal. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, then, you re then you reward these teachers and they don't have to go into something they don't want to. Every great teacher doesn't make a great administrator and so you have the problem. But if you allow teachers to teach teachers and you prepare teacher leaders, then we're going to be so much better off the uh, collaborative environments, collegial environments. Uh, the culture of a campus would be significantly impacted. Once you change a culture, you can do almost anything for big people and little people. Absolutely. I love it. I, I use that phrase too. Exactly. I agree. So, I just, that's a great point. I, we've got to create a pathway, and I'd love to work with you on this. We've got to create a pathway where a teacher that's great can make six figures, can have professional, absolutely. financial absolutely. freedom, and, and can, you know, if they're great and they love it and they want to do it for 30 years, I don't want them to be a assistant principal or principal. I want them to take care of kids. So that, 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 that's where we've got to figure out a way to do that. Great question. I, I wish we could just go on for another hour, but unfortunately we um, have to cut it off here. So thank you all so much for, for being here. If any of you want...